Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton and this week we're taking a deep dive into the first 100 days of the Biden administration's foreign policy. Despite a rapidly mounting domestic agenda, President Biden has already set up an ambitious foreign policy programme. From taking the United States back into the Paris Agreement and signalling intent to work on an updated nuclear deal with Iran, to recalibrating relations with China and announcing the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. To explore what we've learned from the first three months of US foreign policy under President Biden, I'm joined today by Leslie Vinjamuri, Director of the US and Americas Programme and Dean of our Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership in International Affairs. Leslie is a regular on the podcast, and it was great to have her back for this conversation. I hope you enjoy listening. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. Good to see you. Good to see you, Ben. Maybe it's unfair of me, but I'm going to start with a massively broad question. And I was thinking back to the end of 2020 and the debates surrounding the post-election period and, and all the drama that was going on related to America's electoral politics. And I was kind of reflecting that a lot of the commentary around that time was talking about what President Biden was going to do to fix America with a very much a kind of domestic focus. What are the institutions that need attention? Obviously, the pandemic continuing to be a very serious problem. And yet, maybe it's just because I'm sat here in London, but it feels like the first three months of President Biden's administration have been crazily busy in the foreign policy arena. And so I just wondered if we could begin, perhaps you could tell me a bit about what the first three months of 2021 have revealed about how President Biden and his team are seeking to approach foreign policy. You know, it's a great question. Even if it's a big question, it really is the question. And I think, you know, if you go back and you think about the campaign, there were a lot of people who they weren't sure, right? They weren't necessarily sure what Joe Biden would be like as President Biden. And I think there were many people who thought this was the default president because the goal was just anything but Donald Trump. And people thought, you know, is he too old for the job? Was he just the number two? You know, who is Joe Biden? Really, yes, he's a safe pair of hands and he has deep experience, but really, can he lead and can he pull America, quite frankly, out of the devastating mess that it had been in economically, but especially, you know, when he came into office, there were 3,000 Americans dying every single day. I mean, we forget, probably, you know, because the crisis was so deep, how bad it was. And so the most striking thing, I think, has been, you know, this is a president who clearly ran an extraordinary transition, because what we've seen over the first 100 days hasn't just happened. It was calibrated, it was strategized, it was planned, and it was rolled out beginning as soon as Joe Biden was inaugurated as president. So the level of strategy, of competence, of predictability, and I actually, you know, a lot of people think predictability means boring, but I think I say that in a very positive way, right? After what we'd experienced every minute of every hour, and quite frankly, if you were in Europe, especially on Friday evenings, throughout the Trump administration was just shockingly unstable, unpredictable, and exhausting. So the first thing that I think we really noticed from this president is that 
he and his team had a plan, they had a vision, and they had a way of rolling it out step by step by step. And there was a little bit, I think, in the beginning, in the early days, we got what he said we'd get on the tin, which is America's back, and America's going to lead, and America's going to put its values up front, and it's going to have strategic priorities. And that applied domestically as well as internationally. Could you maybe tell us a bit about what these emerging strategic priorities are then? What do you think are the key questions for US foreign policy that President Biden is seeking to address? Well, you know, I think that the big question is, as America's global role necessarily changes, right? Partly because the world has changed. It's a much more competitive world with emerging powers, many of whom are not friendly to the U.S., don't share its values. Obviously, China's the big one, but it's not the only one. Where power is diffused not only to some of these emerging powers, but also to non-state actors, where technological change is so dramatic that the world is complex and it's competitive And the stakes are really, really high for Americans and for people at home because of the economic crisis spurred by the pandemic, but also because of the longer term structural changes. So I think, you know, the first thing has been that the Biden administration has looked at the world and said, where do we want to situate America in the medium and long term? What are the key priorities, but also what are the big threats and how do we go about getting there? And I think the first answer has been, we can't do it alone. And we've got to work with America's allies and with America's partners. And we also have to work with America's adversaries. And so there's been a real focus on almost doing that sequentially. You know, we've seen President Biden very clearly picking up the phone step by step, raising the issues, speaking with America's NATO partners in a very careful way, not talking publicly about Afghanistan in the early days, right? The big decisions were kept private inside the administration and with America's allies before they were announced. So that focus on working collaboratively and consulting and agreeing, I think, has been, there's a sense of deliberation. It's very British, right? It's very, it must be very intuitive for many people on this side of the pond in a way that Donald Trump was about as counterintuitive as it came in terms of, you know, how do you go about things? But then, you know, we can talk more about what the kind of substantive issues are. But I think the first thing really was, you know, what's the way that we work? And we work with people and to the extent possible, but not at any price, We work through, when I say we, I mean the Biden administration is looking out at the world and say, to the extent possible, we work through the multilateral institutions, especially those that have been so critical to international order, an international order that's been very friendly to America's interests for the past seven decades. Some of them are newer than that, but a lot of them have really deep foundations. And I think that this is a team that's wanted to work with what it has, but not at any price. I suppose just to pick up on that last point about cooperation and investment in the multilateral system, do you have a sense of how America's kind of traditional allies have responded to that in these first three months? Has the international community broadly been receptive to that change? Obviously, the legacy of the Trump administration is going to be relatively significant in this space. And (laughs) have we seen that people have just gone, oh, thank goodness you're back. We love this. Back in business, cooperating with America once again. Or have they said, well, you know, you can't just come and go. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, Ben, first of all, 
that anybody who's finished their graduate degree or is along the way, I think I know some people in the room there. I think one of the first lessons is that we're not supposed to use the words the international community because there is no international community. You got to break it up, right? So, you know, what does the UK think? What does Europe think? What are we hearing from the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Australians, those friendly nations, and some, some of them are allies to the United States further afield, the Middle East. I mean, these are all very different places. And so I think the reception to the US has, has been very different. But I mean, I guess the first thing I say is the world didn't stand still waiting for America to come back. And that holds true even in Europe, where you might have thought, right, that Mm -hmm. the world might have stood still and waited for America to come back, partly because the UK was wrapped up in its own very domestic and, quite frankly, very parochial problems during the Trump administration surrounding Brexit and then the pandemic. And Europe has had many of its own internal concerns And obviously, you know, people at a certain point thought it wasn't safe or wise to wait for America to come back. So suddenly, if we're just going to start with that part of the international, I think there's been, you know, initially there was clearly hesitation. And that certainly there was this feeling that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden weren't exactly going to see eye to eye, not least on Ireland, but more generally on Brexit and on their orientation towards the rest of the world. That's come into line. I still don't imagine that these two leaders are going to be natural friends forever. But these two countries seem to have come very much into line. And if you look at the integrated review, the tilt to the Indo-Pacific, Britain's global role, an aircraft carrier going out to Asia, all of these things certainly read to the external eye as America and Britain are pretty carefully aligned Obviously, people have been worried in the U.S. about Europe's willingness to push forward with that investment deal with China in the early days, even before President Biden was inaugurated. But, you know, as time moves on, it feels like there is actually more coming together, you know, as the Biden administration's made it clear that it's on the right side of the aisle when it comes to what Europe cares about, whether it's climate it's playing ball on Iran. That's a complicated issue. But Europe is, you know, taking the lead and America is working through Europe, just like, frankly, the early days of trying to get the JCPOA together. And on any number of issues, Russia, I mean, the, the need is there, the values are aligned. And yes, there are some interests that aren't quite the same. But I think, you know, what we're seeing is that the basics are in place. And so even with that skepticism and damage that we had during the four years of the Trump administration, I think it's been quite remarkable how much the direction of travel is towards one that really reinvests in the transatlantic partnership. But of course, you know, the big thing that we have to always put all of this in context of is the pandemic. And yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We think certainly in the U.S. and the U.K., we think perhaps it's less certain in the U.K. in the short term, but not in Europe right, and not elsewhere. So all of these things, I think, shape how people see America. And America's changed over the course of 100 days from being a country, you know, as we talked about earlier, where 3,000 people a day were dying to now where there have been 200 million doses of the vaccine delivered. So it's an extraordinary change. And now finally, right, America's really getting on board, beginning to make serious commitments to invest in the international distribution of that vaccine. The rest of the world we can talk about, but I think you really, we've got to break it up, right? Absolutely. That's honestly the last time I'm ever going to use the phrase international community. <laughs> it's gone. It's done. We all do it. <laughs> we, we shouldn't, but we do. I think it's We're an aspiration. Just 
picking up on that last point that you were discussing about the pandemic, as I was listening to you sort of reflecting on the parallels in the United Kingdom at the moment and how the pandemic is affecting our policy overseas, we're already seeing, albeit with the integrated review providing some ambition, we're, we're seeing the pandemic and its economic effects being used as an explanation as to why the UK maybe can't be as active in the development space, for example, overseas supporting other countries. Have we seen anything like that emerging out of the US? Is there a sense that domestic sort of situation is going to constrain what the US tries to do overseas in the coming years? Absolutely. It clearly is a constraint, but I think that there is investment in the domestic in a way that's categorically different than we've seen at any extended point, perhaps since the interwar period. It's not only that America's constrained, it's that America wants to put Americans first. You know, Donald Trump talked the talk of America first, but in a lot of instances, he didn't put Americans first. He put certain Americans first, right? He cut corporate taxes, he cut taxes on wealthy Americans, he deregulated the economy, but he wasn't really investing concretely in the American people. You know, after that first big stimulus package, he was reluctant to put more in Americans' pockets. Every week was infrastructure week and no week ever turned out to be infrastructure week for Donald Trump. And that's clearly going to change now, even if it's going to be tough politically. But the idea of a foreign policy for the middle class, you know, this is the language that the Biden administration means. And I think they mean it seriously. It's not always clear in a concrete way exactly what it means. And, and we're beginning to see how that link is drawn. I think Afghanistan is one example. The domestic investments are certainly critical. You know, there's a budgetary constraint. There's inevitably going to be constraints on the defense budget. But yes, I think that the focus on the belief that you've got to rebuild America's democracy, that you've got to heal its racial divisions, its socioeconomic divisions, its rural versus suburban versus exurban divisions. There are so many divisions in the U.S. right now. We tend to focus on partisanship, but it's much deeper than that. And I think that there's a clear sense from this administration that America can't play the kind of role in the world that it might have in the past until it or unless it rebuilds at home. Equally, you know, it's not one versus the other, right? Because that international order, America is much less autarkical than it used to be. You know, it's much more integrated into the global economy, not only through trade and investment, but also through technology and technological change and the need to be competitive. And so maintaining an open order where you've got fair rules and predictable rules is critical to having a set of policies that can deliver to people at home. And remember, the middle class in America is the working class, right? It's not just wealthy suburbanites. It's the working class. We tend to think in Britain, is the middle class is a, occupies a different mm. space. So mm. it is a big constraint. But I think it's also seen as an opportunity to invest in people. I wanted to ask a question now about the Biden administration's national security and foreign policy team. Because I think one of the criticisms, perhaps unfairly leveled at President Biden before the election, was that he was going to be this sort of cardboard cutout president and that there were going to be lots of shady advisors deciding what the US does in tangible policy terms. But of course, when he was vice president to Barack Obama, Biden was involved in many of the sort of major foreign policy events that happened during that time. 
So I just wondered, maybe it's too soon, but whether you have a sense that the foreign policy that we're seeing from the US at the moment is Biden's foreign policy versus that of his advisors, and whether there is a joined up approach on that. I think the key thing here is that, you know, Joe Biden has so much experience on the foreign policy front, as you intimated, right? He's been working in Washington for decades on the foreign policy front. And so the people that he's nominated, some of them have been confirmed or and are working. They have deep professional experience working together. And so I think it's very hard to say, you know, it's Tony Blinken's view and, and President Biden is just sort of, you know, standing up front. I think that there's been a conversation and, and a set of debates and learnings and shared experiences that are such that when they're in the room together, there is, I think there is challenge. I think these are people who are challenged behind the scenes and are diplomatic in front of the scenes. But they would also be able to often finish each other's sentences, even if that's, you know, kind of fleshing out the debate. So I think it's an integrated team. And and we can see whether we're talking about, you know, Wendy Sherman, who worked on the JCPOA so hard, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, all these people are, are, you know, very well known and have worked together. So we also chose a team that can work together. And, and that is one criticism that we have heard, that there are a lot of people that have been in Washington for a long time and are there enough you know, outsiders coming in to the shop? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So I would like to get into some of the specific empirics of US foreign policy at the moment, Ben. And, and I guess one of the key questions has been how the Biden administration is going to approach the question of relations with China. And I think generally this presumed shift of the U.S.'s focus to the Pacific more generally. So could you just maybe tell us about what we've learned over the last few months about how President Biden is approaching relations with China? Yeah, we kind of know the headline story. We know the headline story is that this is not going to be done bilaterally, that any number of partners in the region and in Europe in particular, are going to be critical to, you know, the intention is to have a cooperative strategy, especially on the economic, technology, trade and investment front, and where possible on the security fronts, certainly alignment, although clearly America is going to bear the burden of that defense and security, in effect, making sure that deterrence is robust. I think, you know, when you go a layer below that, there's still a lot that we don't yet understand. And where it's pretty early days in terms of the concrete strategy that's going to be used, you know, how hard and in what ways and through what mechanisms is the administration going to double down on pushing forward with market access? Or, you know, how deep is this war over 5G going to go? Is there going to be any lifting of that? What investment is the U.S. going to make on surveillance technologies that can be competitive relative to the kind of surveillance technologies that China's exporting to a variety of actors across the global south? And, you know, what we have seen is that the U.S. has clearly indicated that it's going to work through the quad. That's going to be a very important relationship. And I think that, you know, I've heard many in Europe say that they would hope that the U.S. also worked through the old quad, not just through the new quad, because uh, Europe would like to be more directly engaged. And then I think the question is, you know, how much the defense and the investment in new military technologies will take place? And, you know, are China and the U.S. fighting with the same weapons? And is that going to have to be revised? 
you know, there's a lot in there. The other thing I would say is that, you know, we have seen that the Biden administration has doubled down on the human rights, right? So we saw the collaborative, you know, highly staged rollout of human rights sanctions on the part of the US and, and the Europeans and the UK. And we saw the backlash, right? The retaliatory sanctions from China. It's not clear where that's gotten anybody. It's not clear what the end game is with that. But certainly, you know, the values are going to be up front, calling out China on its assault on democracy in Hong Kong. It's, you know, lurking behind the sort of question of Taiwan, but especially domestically, it's going to be a point of conversation. There's going to be a lot of contestation, but I think we haven't yet seen exactly how it's all going to be brought together. And I guess part of that, and it takes us to the Middle East, is because you almost get the sense that President Biden knows that if he's really going to double down on that big geopolitical relationship, he's going to have to get America's engagement in the Middle East in the right place. And that, you know, we have seen Uh, the beginning of that strategy. Uh, There's more to do, but we've seen the beginning of that with the announcement about withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan. A perfect segue, Leslie. Thank you. Because I was going to be coming to the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, of of course. And and so what I wanted to ask about that is, is it a sign that the United States in general is going to be pursuing a more limited role in the Middle East, particularly in terms of the kind of security angle, that they're going to be taking a very different approach to this because they think it's the right approach for dealing with the issues in the Middle East? Or are they making these decisions because they think their attention is needed elsewhere? And actually, in a way, the Middle East is going to have to be a problem that they kind of put aside, regardless of whether their actions there are actually helping or hindering the cause. It's a bit of both. So clearly, this is an administration that thinks strategically. It's deeply aware, to go to our earlier conversation, about the constraints on the budget, on the difficult domestic debate about America's forever wars, so-called forever wars. And so the calculus on Afghanistan is clearly a personal one for Joe Biden. This is his deep belief that America's troops should not be on the ground in, in an area where it's not its clear vital interest and strategic priority, relatively speaking, for the U.S. And there's also, I think, how do you set those priorities? And when you look at Afghanistan and you've got China, Russia, and any other number of big challenges, uh, Afghanistan doesn't look very far up the list. Now, it's a little bit difficult to then say, you know, the entire Middle East, clearly there's going to be a very, very significant and is a very significant investment in negotiating a workable and sustainable JCPOA and Iran deal that's accepted by the hardliners at home, that's accepted more broadly in the region itself across the Middle East. You know, some sort of push to get Saudi and Iran maybe in a better place to think about Israel and Palestine. So I don't think there's going to be, you know, moving away from the entire region, but it's not going to be done with boots on the ground. It's not going to be done, I suspect, not through dropping bombs, but through tough, hard-edged negotiations that engage Europe and engage regional partners. But that's not the same as saying, you know, America doesn't care and America's out. It's more about how do you think you can be effective? How do you align your priorities both beyond your shores, but also in terms of those really real domestic constraints. I think the question on Afghanistan is, you know, it's not so much getting out versus not getting out. I think the concern 
is the strategy for exit the right one? You know, should there have been a conditions-based strategy for exit rather than just a announcement, a blanket announcement we're getting out? And that, I think, has been very challenging for many people watching this decision. I know we're meant to be focusing on Biden, but do you think that that decision, whether the exit strategy functions as hoped or not, do you think that drawing the curtain down on this particular military intervention, do you think historians are going to remember this as a as ultimately a pretty uh, chaotic failure in some terms? I mean, thinking in the same way that we write about Russia's intervention in Afghanistan in, in the 1980s, do you think it's going to be a sort of failed episode, regardless of the good that perhaps came for certain aspects of Afghan society? I think that if you look at it from the perspective of Afghanistan, and nation building in Afghanistan, which did become a chief objective of the U.S., that I think that one hates to forecast, you know, doom, but there's certainly a lot of reasons to believe that the Taliban will become more powerful and that they will not do good things when it comes to the rights of women and girls and education and personal liberties and the human security of many of many Afghanis. So I think from the point of view of rehabilitating and restoring a stable, prosperous, free, safe Afghanistan for local people, I, I don't think that this bodes well. If you're thinking about it in terms of, you know, the impact on Europe's security, on America's security, you know, if it's really a question of counterterrorism and refugees, right? then I think it's less obvious that this is necessarily a a bad decision because there has been progress, right, in in managing the problem of terrorism. There needs to be, you know, an ending to the global war on terror. It's been 20 years. It's not been a short period of time. And there are other ways to manage a terrorist threat than actually having troops on the ground. You mentioned earlier that tough negotiations are going to be the order of the day in some of the key questions in the Middle East. But I wanted to turn to some other tough negotiations now, which is those on climate change, which obviously headline news in 2021, what with COP26 coming up in November, and a range of other summits before then that will have huge implications for how the world deals with climate change. And we're speaking, I think, a week after President Biden himself held a summit on climate change, and there were some pretty big headlines around commitments by various countries on the level of their ambitions on this question. I just wondered if you had any reflections on the takeaways from that summit and, and what it tells us about U.S. leadership on climate change. It's certainly a good thing. It's a very good thing that the U.S. has gotten right out in front of that, that John Kerry is a leading figure, obviously, domestic and internationally. And to put somebody with that level of seniority in position, and and frankly, that level of energy and determination and raw intelligence is the right thing to do um, from the point of view of the monumental challenge and the global consequences, what's at stake, and for America's leadership in that, especially in light of the last four years of science denialism and walking back America's Paris contributions and commitment. And remember, it didn't come out of nowhere. When Donald Trump announced that he was pulling out of Paris John Kerry stood up immediately and started working on this issue, working to make sure that America would hit its targets despite not formally being part of that agreement. So there's a history there and a track record. But I think, you know, at the same time, we all know that this is hard work. Summits are great. You know, meetings are great. International diplomacy is great. But at the end of the day, more than on any other issue, perhaps, 
the devil is an implementation. It's in, you know, getting rid of coal, getting those electrical vehicles on the road, the energy transition, it's small things, it's big things. And so arguably, you know, what China does when it goes back home and what the U.S. does are critical. And that takes us, I guess, to, you know, every foreign policy has a domestic underpinning and never has it been more the case than in questions of climate. So can Joe Biden get his infrastructure and climate package through? How much of that will he get through? Can he make the kind of domestic investments that he'd like to make? There's a big part of his climate policy that is about tackling the problem of inequality. A lot of it's targeted at low-income communities that bear the risk of climate, but also stand to benefit from green, clean job creation, right, in those sectors. So there's a lot of hope there, but, you know, it's certainly on the scale of FDR and the New Deal, what he hopes to accomplish in terms of the impact, the positive impact that it would have. But, you know, he faces a very different environment politically. And this is where partisanship and especially polarization between the two parties is is really the challenge for this administration as we look beyond the first 100 days. Yeah, thank you very much. Now, I'm just conscious of time. And Leslie, thanks for your patience with all my questions. Great One... questions. Any day of the week, fabulous questions. <laughs> and you, you have the best podcast series in town, that's for sure. Thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> I just wanted to end. Now, obviously, at the start of this conversation, you, you said that in some ways, the Biden administration has been comfortingly predictable. And yet, I just wanted to ask whether there was anything, a particular decision, however big or small, in these first 100 days that actually caught you by surprise was something that you really did not expect from this administration? What's been something unexpected? Let me qualify what I said about predictability, because while Biden and his team have been predictable in one sense, they've done what they said they would do. He's been, you know, I think Ed Luce wrote a column saying, you know, something like the quiet revolutionary nature of, you know, and it's true. This has been extraordinary. It's been predictable at the headline level, but the, the scale, the rapidity and taking big, bold moves, especially at home right, on the American Rescue Plan, on putting forward the infrastructure proposal, on going for raising taxes. I mean, these are big, bold moves. We can debate whether they're the right ones. I think the American Rescue Plan certainly was. So I think all of that, it's been surprising quite how front-footed and dizzying, I think in a good way, on many dimensions, the pace has been. The most surprising decision to me was the announcement on Afghanistan. I did not anticipate it. I had guessed, especially after the Afghan study report was released, I had guessed that, you know, the decision would have been that the Biden administration was going to kick the can down the road and keep a small number of troops in place for a longer period of time. So I was surprised by that. The other thing, you know, we haven't talked about, and I think it's it's sort of, you know, it would be remiss of us not to acknowledge it. I was in New York last week when the Derek Chauvin, when everybody was anticipating, would George Floyd's killer many Americans all saw this, would he be held accountable? Would he be convicted on on all these counts? And, you know, it underscored the racial tension and the Black Lives Matter movement and the scale of focus on race relations and anti-racism in the United States. And of course, we know that that conviction did come down on all three counts. It was quite extraordinary. And that has been a absolutely top priority for this administration. And it matters far beyond America's borders. 
because I think that when people look back at America and they wonder if the United States can still lead, it's not only can it come out of the pandemic, that's short term, right? That's what was an external exogenous shock that America was not responsible for, didn't handle well. But the question of race relations is something that America is responsible for and Americans are responsible for. And it's not new. And it's been there since, you know, it's the original sin. It's since the founding. And so I think that people looked back at America and especially the protests over last summer, and they've looked to see, can the Biden administration really deal with this deep issue that gets to the heart of America's democracy and its symbolic power for race relations, you know, in many other parts of the world. And that, that I think, is going to be critically important, and it's going to be a key focal point for this administration as we move forward. And so far, I guess, in that dimension, I haven't been surprised because, it, again, they said they were going to embrace it, and they have, but I think it's just incredibly important. Absolutely. Okay, well, Leslie Vinjamari, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Undercurrents. If you liked what you've heard, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people find our work and our sort of long archive now of previous episodes. To keep up to date with the rest of Chatham House's work on US foreign policy, follow the US and Americas program on Twitter at ch underscore Americas. And some recommended reading as well by Leslie Vindramuri can also be found in the show notes accompanying this episode. Next week, we're going to be launching an exciting new mini-series on South Korea's strategic relations. So look out for those episodes in your podcast feed then. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>